Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, October 27th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Kiev says the heaviest of battles is coming to Kherson. A court orders New York to reinstate unvaccinated employees. Two in five U.S. voters worry about intimidation at polls. Fetterman and Oz face off in Pennsylvania's Senate debate. Italy's new Prime Minister Maloney wins her confidence vote and condemns fascism. UK's new Prime Minister Sunak appoints his cabinet. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Khan announces a long march on the capital. Economists claim that the global economy is approaching recession. A UK court hears demands to ban Xinjiang cotton. And NASA identifies 50 methane super emitters. Our first story is an update on the battle in Ukraine, and it is day 245, and here's the roundup. The new British prime minister reaffirms his support for Ukraine, and the heaviest battles are ahead in Herzon, Kiev says. And here are the facts as agreed upon by iNews, Guardian, Newsbud, Pravda, and TASS. Britain's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, the country's third in the year, reaffirmed the UK's support for Ukraine in a call with President Volodymyr Zelensky on Tuesday. A Downing Street statement said he used the call to underline the United Kingdom's steadfast support, which it added would be as strong as ever under his premiership. Sunak also spoke with US President Joe Biden and discussed Russia, China, and post-Brexit tensions in Northern Ireland. The leaders agreed on the importance of working together to support Ukraine and hold Russia accountable for its aggression, a White House statement said. Meanwhile, Alexei Arestovich, an advisor to the Ukrainian presidency, warned of the heaviest of battles ahead in the southern Kherson region. The Russians are replenishing, strengthening their grouping there, he said. It means that nobody is preparing to withdraw. On the contrary, the heaviest of battles is going to take place for Herzon. In the neighboring region of Dnipropetrovsk, fragments of a Russian missile struck a petrol station in the city of Dnipro, causing it to catch fire. At least two civilians were killed and four more were in hospital with their injuries. Zelensky vowed that retaliation will be fair and inevitable following the attack. Further Russian attacks were also reported in the Sumy region, where local officials said over 100 projectiles were fired. There were no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Elsewhere, a further warehouse in Russian territory has caught fire, this time in the city of St. Petersburg. Local officials said the blaze grew to 12,000 square meters and that 160 firefighters were involved in the operation to extinguish it. Thank you, Adam, for laying out the facts on our first story. We've got several narrative spins. We'll start with Narrative A, provided by the Associated Press. With Ukrainian forces zeroing in on Kherson, Russia looks set for another humiliating defeat, dashing their hopes for taking control of Mykolaiv and Odessa and creating a land bridge to the separatist Transnistria region of Moldova. And Narrative B is provided by Newsweek. With Russian troops bedding in and mobilizing greater forces in the Kherson region, Ukrainian troops may succeed in retaking some territory, but it's unlikely they'll recapture the whole region, at least not by the end of the year. 
Speaking of end of the year, the nerds are speaking here with from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 50 percent chance that Ukraine will regain control of Kherson by December 23rd, 2022. In our next story, the court orders New York City to reinstate unvaccinated employees. Here are the facts as agreed upon by American Military, The Daily Wire, Independent, The Daily Signal and The New York Post. New York State Supreme Court Judge Ralph Porzio on Monday ruled that New York City must rehire and give back pay to city employees who were fired for refusing to be vaccinated against COVID. The ruling concluded that the vaccine mandate was arbitrary and capricious, adding that being vaccinated does not prevent an individual from contracting or transmitting COVID-19. The order stemmed from a lawsuit filed by 16 employees of the sanitation department who were fired in February, with Porzio also taking aim at former Mayor Bill de Blasio's vaccine mandate for city workers, which was then expanded to include private employers. Porzio's arbitrary and capricious judgment was in respect to Mayor Eric Adams' Executive Order No. 62, which provided blanket exemptions from the private employer's vaccine mandate for athletes, performers, and other artists, while keeping the mandate for city workers. The order also said the mandate, which affected over 1,750 city workers, including 36 members of the New York Police Department and more than 950 Department of Education employees, violated the separation of powers doctrine enshrined in the state constitution. In response to the order, the New York Law Department said, We have already filed an appeal. In the meantime, the mandate remains in place as this ruling pertains solely to the individual petitioners in this case. Thank you, Melissa. You can bet if we're going to be talking about COVID, there's going to be some politicians that have a say. And the Republicans' narrative is provided by Fox News. Firing first responders did nothing to make New York City safer. It simply put hardworking New Yorkers out of a job and shrank the city's police, fire, and health care forces. Furthermore, if Adams truly believed in the science of the mandate, he wouldn't have lifted it for professional athletes and performers while excluding city workers. And there's a Democratic narrative from Mediaite. The vaccine requirement was firmly grounded in both health and law which is why several other courts have previously upheld the mandate and the city will file an appeal. The mandate isn't an arbitrarily enforced compliance. It's a strategically placed law to protect both workers and the public. And the Metaculous Prediction community have a nerd narrative for this story. There's a 24% chance that any U.S. state will re-implement a general indoor mask mandate before February 1st, 2023. You know, for all the negatives that the mask mandate did have, I did kind of like it for the sense of some days I just didn't feel like dealing with anybody or or smiling. So I could just walk around and have the biggest frown and, you know, that I have in my <laughs> I, face. I thought you were going to say you didn't want to brush your teeth or wear lip gloss. Well, that kind of goes in with not wanting to deal with anybody and, you know. <laughs> Because usually, if I have if I have to deal with people and I don't want to, that means I have to brush my teeth. But if I don't have if I don't I don't have to brush my teeth, if it's, I don't want to deal true. with it, it's true. It's true. And I I am in a healthcare field, so I'm still wearing a mask. Um, and I was just thinking, uh, oh, I don't I forgot my mouthwash. So it's a good thing I have a mask. <laughs> <laughs> See, the masks were good for something. They are. They are. 
And in news on the U.S. midterms, two in five voters worry about intimidation at the polls. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Forbes, CNN, NPR Online News, USA Today, and CBS. A new Reuters-Ipsos poll has found that two in five U.S. voters are worried about threats of violence or voter intimidation at polling stations during the November 8th midterm elections, with 51% of Democrat voters and 38% of Republicans sharing these concerns. The poll also indicates that around two-thirds of voters fear extremists will carry out acts of violence after the election and that 17% believe that their ballot won't be counted accurately, including roughly 1 in 10 Democrats and 1 in 4 Republicans. On Monday, Attorney General Merrick Garland stated that the Department of Justice is committed to ensuring a free and fair vote, vowing not to allow voter intimidation ahead of Election Day in a reportedly heightened threat environment. This comes as Arizona's Secretary of State Katie Hobbs has referred six potential voter intimidation incidents near ballot drop boxes to law enforcement, dubbing drop box vigilantism voter harassment. Voter intimidation is highly situational and can constitute a variety of activities, including displaying weapons aggressively and insulting, questioning, or taking photos of voters. Despite alleged voter intimidation incidents in Arizona, early voting, underway in 34 states and the District of Columbia, has broken some records set in the 2020 presidential election as more than 7.5 million people have already voted. Thank you, Adam. The Democratic narrative forming out of this story is coming from time. Though poll watchers have been long part of American elections and civic engagement is usually something positive, this isn't the case this year as far-right groups have recruited conspiracy-minded individuals to monitor ballot drop boxes and polls. Acting as election fraud crusaders, they've been deepening distrust in U.S. Democratic institutions by harassing and intimidating voters and staff. This must be addressed. And you can bet if there's a Democratic narrative, it's going to be followed up with a Republican narrative. And this one's provided to us by Red State. While Democrats have been claiming to feel intimidated and harassed by individuals watching drop boxes in Arizona, it's Republicans who are facing real political violence, including physical attacks, doxing, and defamation campaigns. Restoring confidence in U.S. Democratic institutions requires more transparency and civic engagement, not curtailing the rights of the public. And there's a nerd narrative on this story saying there's a 50 percent chance that the 2024 U.S. presidential election will be considered fraudulent by the losing party. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. That is cool that the record of early voting has been broken and, you know, it, it was already broken in the 2020 presidential election. What an efficient way to get people to make sure they've got time to vote and, you know, oh, not just, I don't. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't see what you know, why people make such a big deal out of mail in ballots. And I think it's more convenient for everyone and it allows everyone to get a chance to, to vote as opposed to because some people have to work more than one job. Right. And their jobs don't allow them time to go off and vote. Did you know in Brazil, voting day is always a Sunday? There, yeah, there's and there's many places where it's a holiday. Yeah, as well as it should be. Yeah, exactly. It should be a holiday. If you want a real democracy, you got to make sure everyone gets their voice heard. 
more U.S. midterms news, Fetterman and Oz face off in Pennsylvania's Senate debate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Philadelphia Inquirer, ABC, USA Today, Axios, Politico, and the Financial Times. On Tuesday night, Pennsylvania's two leading Senate candidates, Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz, held their first and only debate two weeks ahead of the midterm elections. The two clashed on several issues, including abortion, crime, inflation, and minimum wage, and exchanged personal attacks as they accused each other of running a campaign based on lies. Fetterman expressed his support for Roe v. Wade and codifying abortion rights into federal law, claimed that Oz has no experience in fighting crime, criticized corporations for unfair pricing, and backed a $15 minimum wage. He also said that he has always supported fracking. Meanwhile, Oz argued that abortion should be regulated by state laws, attacked Fetterman's progressive positions on crime, and stated that market forces have already driven up the minimum wage. He voiced a pro-fracking position as well. This debate also marked the first time voters could watch Fetterman unscripted on live television since his stroke in May. According to polls, he leads over Oz by no more than a two-point margin in the race to replace the retiring GOP senator, Pat Toomey. Pennsylvania has long been a crucial swing state and is considered a guide to the national mood. This Senate race is likely to be critical in determining whether Democrats or Republicans control the upper chambers. Thank you, Melissa. The Republican narrative on this story is provided by Red State. Fetterman's responses, which were confused at best and at times outright incoherent, were in stark contrast to Oz's pointed and well-thought-out remarks making it clear why they had only one debate before the elections. This debate has shown Fetterman to be unfit for public office and has secured the Senate race for Oz. And the Democratic narrative is provided by MSNBC. It's evident that Fetterman still has some trouble in speaking due to his stroke, but he's a far better candidate than Oz. Their closing statements in Tuesday's debate proved that, as he delivered a mission statement vowing to look out for those in need while Oz could only repeat a list of Trumpist positions. And the nerds of Metaculous have an opinion on this story. There's a 42% chance that Mehmet Oz will win the 2022 United States Senate election in Pennsylvania. Well, at least one thing's clear. What's that? Pennsylvania loves fracking. Can't get enough of that fracking fracking. They should make a bumper sticker. Pennsylvania. Frack this. <laughs> what the frack? And turning our attention to news out of Italy, Maloney has won the confidence vote and condemns fascism. And here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC, Politico, Washington Post, BBC News, Euro, and Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, Italy's new premier, Giorgia Maloney, won the first of two required confidence votes by a 40-vote margin in the lower chamber of deputies as her right-wing coalition garnered 235 votes. On Wednesday, the new government was set to face an election in the Senate where it holds a substantial majority. This comes hours after she condemned fascism, stating that Mussolini's racial laws in 1938 were the worst moment in Italian history and vowed to fight against racism, anti-Semitism, and discrimination in her opening address to Parliament. Maloney also pointed out her commitment to European integration, 
stating that her government will respect the rules currently in force in the EU while working to change those that allegedly haven't worked to promote greater effectiveness in Europe. Regarding migration, Maloney reinforced her aim to interdict migrant boats crossing the Mediterranean from North Africa. Italy has been a focal point for irregular migrants heading to Europe, with more than 77,000 people having arrived in the country so far this year. The defense of traditional family units and values, support for Ukraine against Russia, and the promise to fight organized crime were other key issues in Italy's first female prime minister's inaugural speech. As Italy faces soaring inflation and risks being pushed to recession next year, Maloney's coalition has promoted a program of tax cuts while emphasizing fiscal prudency as the country's soaring debt is worth 150% of its gross domestic product. Those are the facts of that story, and we'll start with a couple emerging narratives, the left narrative provided by The Guardian. Europe must keep a close eye on Italy's far right, as history has shown that what happens in Rome is soon replicated abroad. And it's hard to find a worse prospect than several Maloney-like leaders coming to power across Europe. Though she acts as if she's a political moderate, Maloney evokes the rhetoric of fascism, is inspired by Hungary's Orban, and has an ambiguous approach to Putin. Well, it'd be weird if we didn't have a right narrative, so we've got one, and it's provided by Washington Examiner. Despite the claims from the mainstream left, Maloney isn't a far-right politician, let alone the second-coming Mussolini. She embraces mainstream cultural values and common sense, representing a risk only to radical globalist leftists who have dragged down Italy for years and infiltrated the EU. Maloney can influence the world to decisively reject left-wing orthodoxy. And Metaculus is at it again with another nerd narrative saying there's a 3% chance that any of Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and or Germany leave the EU before 2027. I, I thought she was going to be more liberal and she turned out to be more conservative. No, she's definitely more conservative. She's kind of echoing England. But even the right's all, eh, she's not so far right. Right. Yeah, they're vilifying her. But, you but know. It's like none of the political parties really want to claim her. Is kind of pushing her back and forth. You have her. No, you have her. Yeah, she's just somewhere in there in the middle on the right side. Which I guess is where you want to be as a prime minister, right? You want to be a little hated by both parties? Not a bad spot, I guess, you know, unless they're just you know, trying, to, trying to get you out of there as fast as you got in. <laughs> <laughs> in news from the UK, the prime minister Rishi Sunak appoints a new cabinet. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Independent, Newsbud, The Telegraph, and BBC News. Rishi Sunak has filled key ministerial posts in his government after being appointed as the UK's prime minister on Tuesday. The new Conservative Party leader enacted an extensive reshuffle that has seen many of his predecessor Liz Truss's supporters leave the cabinet. Those who have exited included Business Secretary Jacob Rees, MOG Conservative Party Chairman Sir Jake Barry, and Chief Tory Whip Wendy Morton. Brandon Lewis has also been removed from his role as Justice Secretary, while Robert Buckland has been relieved as Secretary of State for Wales. Jeremy Hunt, who backed Sunak in the last two leadership roles, has kept his role as Head of the Treasury after being appointed Chancellor by Truss earlier this month. 
James Cleverly, who initially backed Boris Johnson returning as prime minister when Truss resigned, has also remained as foreign secretary. Only days after she resigned over accusations that she had broken the ministerial code, Suella Braverman returned to her former role as Home Secretary. Meanwhile, senior conservative politician Michael Gove was appointed leveling up secretary, while Dominic Robb will be Sunak's Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister. Both have previously held their respective roles under Boris Johnson. Sunak's only declared leadership rival Penny Mordaunt kept her post as the leader of the House of Commons, despite speculation she was eyeing the position of foreign secretary. The UK's new leader has promised to place economic stability and confidence at the center of his government's plan, and he claimed his administration will have integrity, professionalism, and accountability at every level. The reshuffle comes at a time of intense division among the conservative parliamentary party. Thank you, Melissa. The right narrative on this story is provided by Telegraph. Sunak's cabinet reshuffle is an essential remedy following the disaster of Truss's premiership, and his changes will go a long way to restoring stability. The prime minister's focus on party unity and ministerial experience is the right approach as he attempts to guide the UK through a difficult economic and political period. And the mirror gives us a left narrative. In a desperate attempt to stabilize his own position and unite warring Tories, Sunak has brought back a gang of talentless ex-ministers with records as frontbench flops. This outdated and bland cabinet will only see the UK continue in its unsuccessful status quo that has wreaked havoc in recent years. This is a discouraging start. I didn't know Britain had a leveling up secretary. I want to be that. Leveling? Is it like, is, do they in charge of like video games? They're in charge of, uh, they're like the parliamentary life coach. That sounds very much like reincarnation. Like right. You, your, your soul gets to level up to the next, you know, you, you were a tree, but now you get to be a shrub. You were a, mar- a member of parliament, but now you get to be a, a carpenter ant. Level up. <laughs> level up. Congratulations. <laughs> You're now a carpenter. At least you're not a member of parliament anymore. And we have news out of Pakistan. Khan announces a long march on capital. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NPR Online News, and Hindustan Times. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan on Tuesday announced a protest march spanning an estimated 236 miles, or 380 kilometers, from Lahore to Islamabad to call on his government to hold early elections. The so-called Long March, to be launched on Friday, comes as Pakistan's election commission last week barred Khan from holding public office for five years. This was after an investigation ruled that he had unlawfully sold gifts from foreign leaders and dignitaries while in office between 2018 to 2022. The 70-year-old Khan was ousted from office after a no-confidence vote in April, which he claimed was a U.S. plot to topple him and his government. Current Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif and Washington have denied the allegations, and Sharif's government rejected calls for an early election, asserting that they will be held next year as scheduled. In a press conference announcing the protest, Khan said, I am marching to press the government to announce elections immediately. This will be the largest long march in the country's history. 
Despite the charges brought against Khan, which he is expected to fight in court, the former prime minister remains a popular figure in the country. His ousting as prime minister and the election commission ruling sparked widespread protests, some of which turned violent as demonstrators clashed with police. The government has stated it will prevent protesters in the long march from entering Islamabad and that he expects to deploy 30,000 law enforcement officials to surround the capital. Thank you, Adam. We've got several emerging narratives on the story. G-Zero Media brings us Narrative A. Amid a crisis with a cash-strapped government reeling after catastrophic flooding, Khan is playing poker with this long march with Sharif and the country's military establishment. It's unknown if Khan can regain power, but his popularity continues to surge. And First Post is providing the narrative B. The corruption charges brought against Khan are just a minor preliminary move from Pakistan's military-controlled bureaucracy. If these don't stick, more serious allegations will be brought to keep the former prime minister out of office, posing serious roadblocks for him. And the nerd narrative says there's a 43% chance that Pakistan will default on its debts in 2022. This is according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, the global economy approaches a recession. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Yahoo Finance, and the New York Times. The global economy is approaching a recession, according to a Reuters poll that saw economists cut growth forecasts for key economies as central banks keep raising interest rates to bring down high inflation. Most respondents expect the relatively low unemployment within many of the 47 economies included in the poll to reduce the intensity and length of the recession. However, they also believe it will keep inflation elevated for longer. Only six central banks out of 22 polled are expected to hit their inflation targets by the end of next year. This is compared to the 12 out of 18 surveyed by Reuters in July that responded similarly. The European Central Bank is expected to raise interest rates by 0.75% on Thursday for the second time in a row. Some investors and economists have questioned how much further interest rates can be increased as households in the eurozone continue to grapple with surging heating and mortgage bills. Meanwhile, the U.S. Federal Reserve is expected to increase interest rates by 75 basis points on November 2nd for the fourth consecutive time. Economists expect interest rate hikes to continue until inflation falls to around half its current level. Melissa, thank you for the facts on that story. Our pro-establishment narrative is provided by New York Times. Central banks need to raise interest rates to combat inflation by making money more expensive to borrow. By encouraging reduced consumption, rate hikes should result in fewer consumers and companies competing over the currently available supply of goods and services, thereby allowing price increases to moderate. It may be a blunt and even painful tool, but it's a necessary one. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Continued interest rate hikes will only plunge the world into a recession, severely exacerbate life for the world's poorest, and fail to tackle the true source of the cost of living crisis. Rather than aggravating the deteriorating consumer and investor confidence, there needs to be more attention on supply chain shocks and the undue advantage taken by large multinational corporations that boost profits on the backs of some of the world's poorest. I have no grasp 
on the way recession and inflation works. How about you? Well, they're super made up. (laughs) (laughs) So it makes sense that they're a little hard to understand, I think. And I definitely uh, drop my draw when when my friend who's a mortgage broker tries to explain this to me uh, and uh, get that nice, vacant, faraway look. I always tell people that's they ask why why did you be why did you decide to become an actor? I say because I was horrible at math, <laughs> and I could pretend that I'm a mathematical genius, right? Right. Did you hear the way I read that narrative, dude? It sounded like exact like I knew what I was talking yeah. about. <laughs> it's all gobbledygool and ghibli josh to me. I have no idea what I'm saying. Oh, I see. But I can make it sound important. It sounds it sounds very important. Breaking news. Breaking news. I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> a UK court hears demands to ban Xinjiang cotton. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, Independent, Law Gazette, Reuters, and Radio Free Asia. Germany-based World Uyghur Congress, or the WUC, and non-profit Global Legal Action Network are taking the UK government to court to challenge its failure to block the import of cotton products allegedly associated with forced labor and other abuses in China's Xinjiang region. Tuesday's hearing at the High Court in London is believed to be the first time a foreign court has heard legal arguments from the Uyghurs over the issue of alleged forced labor in Xinjiang which is estimated to produce one-fifth of the world's cotton. Justice Dove will rule on whether HM Revenue and Customs, the Home Office, and the National Crime Agency acted unlawfully by failing to investigate alleged breaches of the 1897 Foreign Prison Made Goods Act and the 2002 Proceeds of Crime Act. Rights groups have accused Beijing of widespread abuses, including the mass use of forced labor in camps against Uyghurs, a mainly Muslim ethnic minority that has a population of approximately 10 million people in Xinjiang. WUC UK Director Rahima Mahmoud has claimed that far too long, the UK government has allowed the products of Uyghur forced labor to enter British markets while China has argued that allegedly now-closed vocational training centers were set up to prevent terrorism. Thank you, Adam. Several narrative spins are emerging on this story. The anti-China narrative comes from The Telegraph. While the U.K. may have imposed fines for companies operating in China that fail to prove their products aren't linked to slavery, this isn't enough to punish Beijing for its human rights abuses. Britain should have followed the U.S. and banned all imports of cotton from Xinjiang, as there's plenty of evidence that Uyghurs are being forced to pick the plant under slave-like conditions. And the pro-China narrative is provided by Global Times. Xinjiang cotton field operations have become highly mechanized, with no signs of forced labor. Nevertheless, the West continues to put forth baseless claims in an attempt to smear Beijing. Cotton-related sanctions will only damage the global cotton industry. If anyone is forcing and exploiting labor in Xinjiang, it's the West with their capitalist system of globalization. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus says there's a 20% chance that the UN will open an investigation or otherwise intervene on the issue of Xinjiang internment camps before 2024. In our final story today, NASA identifies 50 methane super emitters. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, and Space. On Tuesday, NASA said its Earth's Surface Mineral Dust Source Investigation mission detected and identified more than 50 super-emitters of methane gas in Central Asia, the Middle East, and the southwestern United States. The observations occurred as a part of the International Space Station's operations. Methane absorbs infrared light in a way that allowed the NASA mission to detect the greenhouse gas more easily. Sites under investigation included oil and gas facilities, as well as extensive landfills. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said reining in methane emissions is key to limiting global warming. This exciting new development will not only help researchers better pinpoint where methane leaks are coming from, but also provide insight on how they can be addressed quickly. Potent methane gas emissions last in the atmosphere for 10 years, while CO2 lingers for hundreds or thousands of years. Reducing methane gas emissions would have a more immediate impact on decreasing global warming. Examples of these super-emitters included an oil and gas infrastructure site in Turkmenistan with a cluster of 20 plumes stretching more than 12 miles. Other large emitters identified included an oil field in New Mexico and a waste processing plant south of Tehran, Iran. NASA research scientist Andrew Thorpe further stated, We are really excited about EMIT's potential for reducing emissions from human activity and pinpointing these emissions sources. Melissa, thank you for the facts on that interesting story. We've got quite a few narratives spinning out from it. Our narrative A is provided by space. NASA's findings are critical to supporting policymakers in regulating dangerous methane gas emissions. Game-changing monitoring tools are also being developed in Europe, which will help to pinpoint sites like power plants and fossil facilities. These space-based tools will help to hold super-emitters accountable. Narrative B comes from RMI. While satellites are excellent sources for monitoring and tracking greenhouse gas emissions, there are shortcomings with space-based data collection systems. Satellites don't typically measure all greenhouse gases everywhere, all the time, and they must be coupled with ground-based detection systems if we want a true picture of emitters. Narrative C is provided by Science Daily. While it's crucial to monitor and hold accountable human-based super-emitters, soon the Arctic will be ejecting just as much greenhouse gas into our atmosphere as a large industrial nation, and even potentially as much as the U.S. has emitted since the start of the Industrial Revolution. We need to bring the power of satellites and sensors to the barren Arctic, as well as to human infrastructure. And the nerds have the last word today, with the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 50% chance that global CO2 emissions will peak by June 2037. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, October 27th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. <laughs>